Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to again talk about the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God and how those two relate or don't relate to each other. And uh, we're going to look at a word cosmos, which is translated world in the Bible, almost always translated world in the Bible. But it's not the only word that's translated world in the Bible, the only Greek word. There's several others. And uh, there's a lot of confusion because uh, the translators decided for one reason or another, maybe because they were working for uh, the church established by Constantine or maybe because they were working for, I mean, because you got to remember the first Bible that was put together, what we call the Bible, was put together by Eusebius, who was paid by Constantine, who probably never was a Christian. <laughs> Constantine, he didn't get baptized till he was dead which I don't know if that would count, whatever the water baptism. I mean, you remember John said, I only baptize you with water. There's someone else who comes after me that's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that's the baptism you want. Baptizing with water, you could just be all wet. Uh, and besides, baptism is not what is really required. What is really required is repentance and then submersion in the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, to come in the name of Christ, to come in the character of Christ. If you don't do those things and you get baptized, you're just wet. The water has no power. It is it is coming in the name of Christ, uh, receiving His Holy Spirit and acting upon, putting that Holy Spirit into action. That's the key. And uh, it's not about earning salvation. It's about receiving salvation. And you can't receive it unless you repent. Think a different way. And the only way you will know how to think is that if you let God come into your heart and into your mind and write upon your heart and your mind what he's actually saying. But we're going to talk about words because words is what you think in now. You think in words. Most people think in words. They They hear themselves talking in their head. And unfortunately, it's not always them doing the talking. (laughs) It's the world, the flesh, and even the devil that may be talking in their head, giving them ideas, making them think a certain way. Uh, There's a lot of talk about people uh, dealing with uh, the millennials. And uh, they have a form of rational thinking. And, of course, now millennials is... These young people born in in this last uh, generation and now coming of age. And uh, that's a wide variety of people and they have a lot of different ideas. But there's certain characteristic ideas that are popping up amongst the young people that is is a product of the influence of their educational systems, which have been subverted for the last 30, 40 years. At least, I, I remember when I was attending school, you know, 60 years ago, and what they were teaching. And then I also studied school books going back to the 1800s, and what they were teaching in those school books. And so you can see a progressively changed theme 
in education from first grade to twelfth grade to college where there's literally an agenda showing up, whether that is a conscious conspiracy or a subconscious conspiracy, the reality is is that people think a certain way based on the the educational information that they have received as they were coming into adulthood. They are brainwashed by the influences of the educational system. And the educational system doesn't even know it's doing it. They think they already know. Uh, a common quote we're, we love to, to bring up is, it's not so much what you know that's going to get you into, or, or don't know that's going to get you into trouble. It's what you absolutely know is true that just ain't so. And really, it's a combination of the two. And so we're going to try to clear some of that up with uh, looking at some words. Of course, we've always looked at the word religion. 200 years ago, religion was a duty. It was a duty, the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. It was actually what you did. If you go back to the Greek word that we translate into religion, threskia, uh, that word uh, means what you do. It's actually specifically religion was what you do. Now, today, religion is what you think. And those two definitions have been around a long time, but that's not really what Threskia is not what you think, it's what you do. Now, what you do, you may do because you think it's right to do that, but the reality is it's not just an opinion. Religion is not just an opinion. When they translate the Greek Threskia into Latin, they use the word religiere, which is where we get the modern word religion today which may not mean the same as religiere, because religiere has to do with binding or rebinding somebody. And there's lots of ways to bind somebody. You can bind somebody, you know, people together with faith, hope, and charity, or you can bind them together with force, fear, and violence. Both might be called religion, because both are about binding. But uh, there's another word in the Latin that is also translated religion. And that is um, superstitio. And superstitio is being translated as actually what you think. It's the fears and phobias. It's it's what is in your mind. Well, when people talk about religion has caused all these wars and, and deaths over the centuries, that's what has done that. Superstitio. What they think about God. Because what they think about God is tied to their own personal vanity. If you don't think what they think, you're the enemy. Because you have to love their God. You have to accept their idea. Because you have to accept them as being right. It's all about being right. It is the, that's where the Cain syndrome comes out. And you start bashing your brother in, in the head in order to prove your point. That is not Triskia, that is uh, superstitio. That is what you think about God. Now, most Christians today, I mean, they go to this church or they go to that church because that church thinks what I think about God. And so it's they've redefined, they've taken the word that means what you do, the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. Five times the word religion shows up in the Bible and four times it's in a bad sense. Because they're not doing, they're not fulfilling their duty to God and their fellow man. They're actually putting heavy burdens upon the people. 
they are uh, controlling the people, taking away their freedoms, taking away their liberties, deflecting them away from obeying God. And those are all bad religion. Only place that talks about good religion in the Bible is James describing what religion is. And what is religion? It's how you take care of the needy of your society. That's pure religion. And you had to do it unspotted by the world. You were not to be, your religion was not to be spotted by the world. How does the planet Earth spot your religion? It doesn't. Because the word there that we translate into world doesn't mean planet Earth. <laughs> it, does, it has no connection whatsoever, really, with the planet Earth. Uh, theologians had to look really hard all over uh, Greek literature to try to find somebody who used the word, the Greek word we see there in the text, where it might refer to the Earth as a planet. And they did find somebody who did use it in that way. Sort of. They actually weren't talking about the planet. They were talking about all the planets and the stars. And what they were doing was they, then they referred to it as the cosmos because that's the, that's the Greek word they used to translate into world. That's what we see translated into world when they're talking about your religion is to be unspotted by the world, unspotted by the cosmos. So, how does the cosmos spot your religion? Well, uh, the the reason that the uh, Greek philosophers and, and uh, well, we didn't call them scientists of their day, used the word cosmos in reference to the planets and the stars was because they saw the planets and the stars moving according to a pattern, a system. They knew that the planet revolves this way, moves this way, and moves this way, and moves this way, and this one moves this way. And they are following patterns of behavior. It isn't just a bunch of white dots up there that we call stars. Uh, so they use the word cosmos to describe the motion of the planets and the stars. Because they saw a pattern in there. But the word did not originate in the idea of describing the heavens above or the cosmos. We have the word cosmos, C-O-S-M-O-S. This is what K-O-S-M-O-S is the Greek word, at least in English alphabet. They look out there and they saw this pattern and they took a word that already existed in the Greek that is correlated to the idea of patterns or systems, and they use that word to describe what they were seeing in the moon and the the planets and the stars. And that's why that word was used there. But we're going to take a look at where that word was also used in Greek literature, and not just any Greek literature, but specifically in constitutions of governments. Because that word shows up quite a bit in reference to governments. Because governments are systems too. And we're going to take a look at that. So, one of the things that, because we just took a look at the word religion, and we look a little bit at the word cosmos, and we're going to look more at that, I've put together a little phrase to help people 
get this concept down. To read ancient texts requires you to use ancient dictionaries. I talked to somebody just this week and they uh, they uh, were defining a particular word and I said, well, it, it doesn't actually mean that. <laughs> Which I think actually the word was religion and uh, that religion means... Uh, you know, the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. I th- it might have actually been another word. I can't even remember. There's so many words we have. And he he didn't like my definition uh, because it was different than what he had. Because, see, it's all about him. It's about what he thinks. You have to agree with what he thinks. If you don't agree with he, what he thinks, you might be suggesting that what he thinks is wrong. He identifies with what he thinks. And so, therefore, you're saying he is wrong. As if he is bad because he is thinking something incorrect. He, What he knows to be true is not really true. He feels personally attacked because you're saying that what he's saying is not true. Because he doesn't approach information humbly. Now, I know a lot of people out there that when I talk about some of these things, I will seem to contradict them. No, I'm contradicting what they may be saying or thinking. But if they identify with what they're saying and thinking as if that is them, that is pride. That is you clinging to the tree of knowledge. Believing in the tree of your knowledge. And if I say, no, that knowledge that you have is incorrect, it is false, it is misinformation, you feel personally attacked. And that's not what I'm doing. I'm not attacking you personally. I'm sharing with you things that I have seen, that I have discovered, that I have found out, and I share them often with hundreds of footnotes, so you can check and find out where I got this. So that you can re-examine what you have come to believe that may not be true. So I'm not really attacking you. But I may be attacking a delusion that you have accepted. That gives you a sense of identity. A lot of people go to church, join religions, denominations to give them a sense of identity. Of, of belonging, a feel like they belong. Somebody just wrote this week and, and wanted to know what they could do to be a part of our group or a part of some church group. And I said, we don't want you to belong to the church. We want you to belong to Christ. We don't want to be the source of your inspiration. We don't want to be the the knowledge in your head. The only reason we use this knowledge is to pry out what's already in there. (laughs) That just shouldn't be there. So that you can let Christ in. There's no room for Christ in your head if you're full of all this information that just ain't so. Because God and lies are not compatible. The truth and lies are not compatible. You can't let Christ in if you're going to keep clinging to the lies that are in your head that other people have put there. So we're 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 kind of tearing down the lies. And really what we're doing is shaking the branches of the tree of knowledge. 
And you can say, oh my gosh, this is not the tree of life. This is the tree of knowledge I'm in. That I have uh, sought refuge in. That I have sought comfort from. That the tree of knowledge has become my comfort. This is why, you know, it says it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Well, it's it's hard for a, a smart man to get into the kingdom of God. <laughs> because his wealth is his knowledge. He's got a degree in this and a degree in that and a degree in this. And he's got all these diplomas and he's read all these books and he knows all this stuff. And people look up to him because he's really smart. And he can't accept anything that might contradict what he already believes. And therefore, he can't let Christ in because Christ, when Christ comes in, he is the light. He's going to expose what you thought was true that is really not true. And people don't like that. They don't want that exposed. They don't want to see what they have come to believe is true that just ain't so. So anyway, when uh, when people uh, try to talk about the kingdom of God uh, being a real system or way of righteousness, many modern Christians respond with the kingdom of God is not of this world. Because that's written in the Bible. We hear that Jesus actually says that to Pontius Pilate. That the, the that his kingdom is not of this world, and he uses that word cosmos. So that does that mean it's not in the universe? It's not on the planet? He's been saying the kingdom of God is at hand. He's been telling us that we are to seek the kingdom of God, but then all of a sudden he tells Pilate that it's not of this world. Just when Pilate is sitting down in the judgment seat, he tells Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. And you hear the word world, and you think he's talking about the planet. It's not here. It's 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 spiritual. It's off somewhere else. You know, although Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. So, you're here. So, why isn't the kingdom of God here? So, what what is he talking about? And see, you can read in John 19, 13, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place called the pavement, but the Hebrews called Gabbatha. So he was going to judge Jesus. And he had that right as the procurator of Rome in Judea. Uh, Because what was Jesus being accused of? He was being accused of sedition. He's claiming to be king. He's claiming to be the rightful king. The people had proclaimed him highest son of David. Why highest son of David? Because David was king. And he they're calling him the Christ. Every time they call him the Christ, they're saying he's the anointed. David was called the anointed. That's another way of saying the king. Uh, they called David the Messiah, the Messiah, which means anointed. In Greek, that would be Christ, Christos. Means anointed. So all over the, the Bible, Jesus is called the Christ. They're, they're calling him the anointed king, the highest son of David, of a real kingdom, marching into Jerusalem, accepting him as the king, and literally as high priest, which is another story we won't get into right now. So he's saying, my kingdom's not of this world, not of this cosmos. 
So, what does that word cosmos actually mean? It doesn't mean planet. We know it doesn't mean planet. You can barely find reference to it as a planet. They will show you where Greek philosophers use the word in relationship to the planets, but they only did that because the planets were seen by them as moving in patterns and systems according to laws and rules. And so therefore they use the word cosmos to describe that movement. If you look up in a Strong's Concordance for the definition of cosmos, it says an orderly arrangement. That is how it's defined as an orderly arrangement. But if you don't know the historical etymology and the common usage of the day for that word cosmos, the this definition of that being an orderly arrangement could even be deceptive. So you have to look at uh, at uh, well, like Thayer's Greek lexicon, and uh, also you can look in the outline of biblical usage, which is again going to be influenced by religionists who have already accepted certain doctrines and eschatologies, etc. And they're going to bend those words and say, yeah, it means it in this sense. Sometimes they do more than bend it. They break it. But they, a lot of times they will bend it. Because they will say to you that Paul really kind of meant this. Or Jesus kind of meant this. Or the apostles were trying to communicate this. But in Thayer's Greek lexicon, it's defined as an apt and harmonious arrangement or constitution or, or order government. Cosmos means constitution, order, or government. Actually, primarily, that's what it means. You will find that the word is sometimes applied to mean a harmonious arrangement but generally speaking, in the Greek, if you look at all Greek literature, you're going to find that it has to do with constitutions, order systems, order in the sense of systems, and government. And we're going to actually show you some of those constitutions where it shows up and how the word is commonly used historically in the Greek, which has to do with judges and magistrates often has to do with judges and magistrates. But we'll explain all that when we come back and talk to you more about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. We'll be right back. So, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, this constitutional order or government that is expressed by the idea of this word cosmos, which we see translated world, maybe we should briefly remind you the other words that are translated world in the, in the New Testament. 
They aren't always translated world. Even cosmos is not always translated world. One place it's translated adorn. And again, adorn how, it depends on how you adorn something. Usually a lot of the uh, ornamental adorning of people is like braiding hair, which again is a pattern, or uh, uh, putting... Uh, lacing things into braids you you see it even all the way back into egypt where they would uh, braid beards and stuff like that and it would they would follow a certain pattern and that's what adorning is and again that's why they use the word in describing the planets and the moon and the stars is because they saw a pattern because if you just look up in the sky briefly for the first time ever and you see all the stars at night you don't necessarily see a pattern. It just looks like everything is just kind of out there. But people look at it long enough and they say, well, wait a minute, that one light over there that doesn't really twinkle like all the other stars, it's moving different than all the other stars. And they saw a pattern in this. And so they use this word cosmos to describe the fact that the stars and the moon and everything are moving according to a pattern. But the other words in the Greek language that are used sometimes translated as world is one like echomene and echomene kind of means inhabited places and uh, and there are other words like aeon uh, which is normally translated age and but sometimes that's translated uh, as a uh, uh, world and you know in our articles and and uh and videos that we have on this subject, you know, we'll, we'll equate it to when they, we say the word world today. What do we mean? Uh, or do we mean the planet? Because we've all seen those pictures of this big round marble in space. And, you know, and, you know, we've seen Star Trek and all these different shows. So we see the planet as this big round marble floating in space. And that's that's the world. And we have globes sitting on our desks and, and that's the world. So when I say world, you think of that. But then again, other people think of Wayne's World or Disney World. Those are worlds too, but those aren't planets. And uh, we can talk about the world of whatever, of some particular person's life. That's the world as he knows it. The world as he sees it. So the word can have these other meanings. So you have the these other... But when they talk about the end of the world, what word did they use there? Did they use this word cosmos? Or did they use the word aeon? Or did they use the word echomene? Or did they use the word eret? Which is never translated world in the biblical sense, but is translated earth. Well, that actually means more like planet, although even that doesn't mean, because there are other words that mean, you know, like uh, dry land. And uh, that would be also uh, translated world in places. That's not, that's not the world we're talking about when we're talking about the cosmos. Uh, so, anyway, Knowing that you've got four different words, possibly five different words in the New Testament that can be translated world. And you don't know which one they're using where. And when they talk about the end of the world, you think they're talking about the end of the planet. And there are other reasons why. Or the or the melting of elements. Well, you have to look up these words and see them in 
other senses and other contexts and what that author might be. Because you are being led around by modern religion. And modern religions have led the whole world back into the bondage of Egypt. And it's worse today than it was back then. And you don't even know it because in a lot of places you're very comfortable in the bondage of Egypt. And I'm sure the bondage of Egypt at times was very comfortable. It sure beat starving. But the reality is you're back in the bondage of Egypt. Most of you have already accepted the mark of the beast. People don't want to hear that. But you've already got it. You're not condemned to hell. But you're going to go through some trials and tribulations. You, What was the bondage of Egypt? You didn't own your gold and silver anymore. You didn't own your land anymore. The government owned it. You lived on it by the grace of the government. But you had to pay them a rent, a use tax on the land. You had to pay them for the use of your own labor. A portion of your labor no longer was yours. One-fifth of your labor, the products of your labor, had to go to the government uh, of Pharaoh. That was the bondage of Egypt. And he, he, through crafts of state, that's one way they translate it, through crafts of state, this burden became heavier and heavier and heavier. And so that people were actually casting out their children. And the word children there is the word brephos, which means fetuses. doesn't just mean small children. It meant fetuses. People were casting out their fetuses. Why? Because it was a heavy taxation on you for every child you had. Because they were trying to cut back the population. So that's what they were doing. And so they they were aborting children. And they were co- committing infanticide because of the economic pressures of this bondage of Egypt. You're in the bondage of Egypt today. Uh, you're, you may be in America or Australia or, or China or what have you, but you're in the bondage of Egypt. And you are casting out your brephouses, your unborn children. They are not timely generated like Moses was timely generated. And your children are a surety for debt. They've become merchandise. You have cursed them with that debt through your covetous practices. But anyway, we're not, we're, we're going off to the side here, but those of you who have followed a great deal of the information that we've shared with you about the meaning of words, and we're not making up new meanings. We're quoting theirs. We're quoting Strong's. But we're also going to quote other dictionaries, ancient dictionaries, other people that were defining these same words and showing you how those words were used at that time and before that time and the etymology of that word so that you can understand what Christ meant when he told Pontius Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. What world? In the pavement, in the judgment seat, in the courtroom of Pontius Pilate. Jesus was saying, you ain't got no jurisdiction over my kingdom. Because my kingdom's not of this cosmos, this orderly judicial system. And we're going to give you tremendous evidence that proves that that is actually what he was saying. Unfortunately, today, most of the churches and most of the people can't say that. The church was not to be of the world. What word did they use there? Of the age? Of the inhabited places? Of what? The echomene? 
know of that constitutional order or system of government. Our religion was not to be a part of that government. The way in which we took care of the needy of our society was not to be a part of that world. It wasn't to be assisted or helped or uh, uh, provided for by that world. Why? Because that world operated by force. By the sword, it forced the offerings of the people. It compelled the offerings of the people to provide the welfare for the people. That's a sin against God. That will make the word of God to none effect. Because it's not done by what Jesus calls love and what Paul calls charity. Actually, they both called it the same thing. But when the translators got a hold of the original text... They translated the same word that Jesus says that means charity as love. And they trans- when Paul says it, they translate it charity. Because charity and love are the same thing. True charity and true love are the same thing. Some charity is not love. Some charity weakens the poor. And some charity isn't even charity. The government does not give you welfare as a matter of charity, the government gives you welfare, uh, social security payments, all these things, because they have forced your neighbor or borrowed money against the future of your children to provide you with benefits. Right today, supposedly, the government is shutting down because the Democrats won't let them borrow more money against the future of your children. So the government is shutting down. They want to borrow more money Put your children farther and farther into debt and the Democrats won't let them. Not because the Democrats care about your children. Because, you know, when the Democrats were in power, the Republicans were trying to get their way in the budget. They both want to borrow money against the future to continue this travesty of liberty, which is not really liberty, but making you more and more merchandise, cursing your children with more and more debt, uh, going deeper and deeper into bondage so that you can't just say, I, I want out because you're in debt. You're a surety for debt. You can't just leave. All these guys going around with their little uh, paperwork packets of, you know, you file all these papers and then you're just free. Nonsense. You have to repent. You have to think a different way. You have to understand the problem. You have to go down a different road. So cosmos means uh, an arrangement a system, a constitutional order or government. That's what it means. And we're going to show you why it means that. And why Jesus said, my kingdom's not of your world. It's not of your system. It's separate. You don't have a right to judge me. And he didn't. He washed his hands of the whole thing. Because he, he realized, oh my gosh, you know, there were probably more said than we have recorded there. But he, Jesus is even pointing out that Pontius Pilate you, thou sayest that I am a king. So there was already things going on there. There were already events, and we refer to them, you know, like the aqueduct and the riots that came about because of that. We give you the history of that. It's mentioned in the Bible, but if you don't understand really what was going on, that they were literally accusing the government of robbing their social security fund, their Corbin, to build this aqueduct. They said that should have been you know, that should have been a separate collection to take up the money to build this aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. You should not be borrowing against the Social Security Fund. 
Same problems are going on today. You just don't understand how the system works. Well, the, did you know Social Security was bankrupt when it started? Because <laughs> the government was bankrupt when it started Social Security. It only created Social Security so it would make you, all those people who sign up, a surety for the debt. You were the new collateral that was now put on the tables of the money changers. And so now they could borrow against your labor, your future labor, and the future labor of your children. That's the way the system set up. It was set up that way from the beginning. And we go through all this. We explain it all. We give the books away. But people don't want to read that because they want to believe they already know. Well, you have to realize you don't already know and be willing to take a look at what you think you know and accept the fact that it just ain't so. So this harmonious arrangement or constitutional order or government, this cosmos of Pontius Pilate, was not connected by treaty, by application, to the government of Jesus Christ. And we go through the whole history. We take you back to when the Romans first came there. And there was a civil war between Aristobulus and Hyrcanus. And we explain what was really going on. And that the Romans were there and they had every right to be there. But of Jesus' kingdom, they had no part. They had no authority over it. Because it was not of their world. Jesus goes to great lengths to make sure that the apostles are not of the world. They were not a part of the Corban of the Pharisees. They had not signed up. They were idiotes. They had not signed up for the Corban of the Pharisees. They were separate. Very important. And they could do this. Legally, lawfully, righteously. But the modern church isn't doing that. I mean, just just in the news, just before the show, we're hearing that the Pope is uh, giving awards or whatever to somebody who has raised millions of, millions of dollars for abortions all over the world. Because the, the present Pope wants to change the rules concerning abortion, concerning uh, uh, homosexuality, all these things in the Roman church. And so there's a lot, there's, you're going to see a lot of uh, turmoil and conflict because of the activities of that present Pope. But you're going to see it in lots of areas. You're going to see it in the areas of government. You're going to, we've seen it in the streets. You're going to see it more and more, more and more riots in the streets. You're actually going to see it in the geology of humanity. And how things operate. You're going to see how more and more of this commotion. In other words, that orderly system of the universe is going to be disrupted. But right now we're going to continue with our understanding to get a better understanding of this idea of what the cosmos really is. And so there is the world or cosmos of Cain. And Nimrod of Egypt, of Rome. And is there also a cosmos of Christ, a system of Christ, a pattern of Christ and his kingdom? And we've talked about that recently in our article on the congregation and articles uh, quoting Mark. And uh, 
where Jesus commanded that the people sit down in an orderly arrangement according to companies in, in ranks of 50s and 100. He commanded that they do that or there was not going to be any loaves and fishes. They had to sit down in that and he commanded his disciples to make the people sit down in companies, those small groups like 10 men and their families. And those companies upon companies order themselves in ranks of 50s and 100. Now, Jesus said that. You don't, if that seems new to you, then whoever your pastor is, if he doesn't understand that Jesus commanded that and why he commanded that, you probably need a different pastor. You need to call him out. Why didn't you tell us that Jesus commanded that? And you can ask him another question. Ask him what the weightier matters are. If he can't tell you, you probably got the wrong pastor. You should probably not go to that guy for much information. You can still talk to him if you want. But he's not a pastor of Christ. Now, he could repent and become one, but he's going to have to see the whole truth of the gospel of the kingdom. So anyway, Christians uh, were not to be of the world, especially the ministers. I'll bet you most of the people out there who have ministers now or go to churches now, those ministers are of the world of Rome, of the world of the United States, of the world of Australia. They are of that. And Jesus commanded that his apostles not be of the world. They could be in the world, but not of the world. So what is he talking about there? He's talking about that word cosmos again. The cosmos, a world of Rome, had become a system of these covetous practices that I've just talked to you about, where people wanted benefits at the expense of their neighbor, and they prayed to men, they applied to men who call themselves benefactors, to the fathers of the earth, we explain who those guys are. It's very easy to explain. It's very well documented who the fathers of the earth are. It Once you understand that they're using a Latin word, patri, patronus, right there in the text, that means father, and all the senators of Rome were called patri. Uh, the emperor was called patronus, our father of art in Rome. You are not to pray to them. Apply to them for benefits, especially for benefits at the expense of your neighbor. That's anti-Christian. That's anti-Christ. And it is certainly not practicing pure religion. Well, most of you out there, or anybody out there receiving government benefits, how are you going to survive without those government benefits? Well, you need to turn around, change your thinking, realize that you're caught up in a system of bondage in Egypt and Rome and Cain and Nimrod and Babylon And you need to start going back the other way. And how do you do that? You sit down in companies of 10, organizing yourselves in ranks of 50 and 100 and thousands, because there was 5,000 there at the Loaves and Fishes, and start taking care of one another in the practice of pure religion. It may take a while before you get to pure religion, (laughs) unspotted by the world. But that's where you need to be going if you are going to be repenting and seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's where you're going to be going. That's what you're going to be doing. That is what seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness is about. It's a process.
You're not going to jump into the kingdom. You're not going to jump out of necessarily. Many of you cannot just leave off the benefits of the world. But if you turn around, start heading back, start gathering in those congregations, contributing daily to a daily ministration, get, getting ministers who connect and try to help you out so that you have to depend less and less on the world that is going to fall apart anyway. It's going to, uh, it's not going to end the planet but it is going to fall down. And we'll, we'll, we'll maybe get to that in, in the next show. Uh, because, I mean, they tell you, we're going to go through a lot of those quotes where they use this word cosmos so that you understand what they're talking about. But if you go back to like the 7th century B.C., that word cosmos was used all the time. It was used in constitutions to describe jurisdictional offices of magistrates. It's actually translated, the word actually is translated as office of magistrate in constitutions as far back as the 7th century B.C. Now, you don't have to go that far back. We can show you other places too. But at least in the 7th century, for example, a very early constitutional inscription shows that the 7th century Drerus on Crete prohibited the tenure of the office of cosmos, this this local magistrate that under 10 years had to elapse since the man's last tenure before he could get tenure again. And this was, this is actually, you can find this in a, in, in a number of books. One is the, the later archaic period, uh, the rise of t- tyrants. They saw that there was too much power being given to magistrates. They were getting into positions where they, they were not answerable to anybody. And so they said, no, we have to, uh, we have to limit their tenure. It's kind of like term limits. So they were limiting their tenure so that they could not, uh, continue in that office too long because once they became entrenched, they just kept repeating this same, you know, corruption. You know, they could take bribes. And we see that happening in Israel. Before they decide to have a king. This is one of the reasons why they decided to have a king. Was that the judges of Israel. The cosmos of Israel. The system of Israel. They they were taking bribes. You don't know how the system of Israel was working. Because you've gone to the Pharisees and asked them what the Old Testament means. The cities of refuge were appeals courts. We explain this in other articles. We won't go into it in that depth right now. But you didn't just run to another town, ollie, ollie, and free. I'm to this town. Now you can't kill me. And so all the criminals went to that town and they called it a city of refuge. No, that's not what you appealed up through this system of Levites, which was a charitable system of social welfare. You tied to the Levite of your choice. You got to pick them. You tithed to them. If he didn't like the job he was doing, you'd pick a different Levite and you tithed to him. And so the power of the office of Levite was really in your hands. Because if that guy was corrupt, you didn't have to... Or, or if he picked another guy that was corrupt, you could stop tithing to him. If you found out that, you know, up in this network of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands... That some people were taking bribes and you heard the story, you could stop, you could tell your minister, stop supporting that guy. And it would come up to the chain and they would change that. Until then, 
These Levites were your appeals courts. And we'll tell you more about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back. So we're talking about this word cosmos, which means constitutional order or system of government. Before that, Thayer's defined it that way. We can go back into ancient history and look at how other people defined it. And we see it used in a constitution, uh, constitutional law and Reros, which uh, dates back to 650 B.C. and uh it's used is in reference to the office of magistrates and limiting their tenure so that that tyranny will not reign in the land and so they were now these these offices or magistrates at one point because this is based on the codification of laws were put into place often by appointment of the king and they were saying that you know that he couldn't get another appointment until 10 years had lapsed since the last one so this guy is not going to get entrenched in this office so it's literally for the same reason that you see people talking about term limits because as magistrate he could be taking bribes and allowing people to do things uh, that they shouldn't be doing and i pointed out that the reason israel wanted to have a king like all the other nations was because they were taking bribes. We see that in Samuel. You can go read First uh, Samuel eight and see that the 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 sons of Samuel were taking bribes. And why were the sons? What 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 power did they have? I mean, weren't they just high priests over a welfare system that was tending to you know killing sheep in uh, on piles of stone? No, this was a system of government. If you don't understand, see, you go back to all these different words. We say altar. You see a pile of stones. And you you see uh, sacrifice, burnt offering. You see sheep laying on there and they're setting on fire. Men are holding their hands up in the air like burning up sheep makes God happy. No, it doesn't that. When they say that they you take the kidney out and you give it to the Levite. And so now that Levite's eating kidneys and kidney fat morning, noon, and nighttime too because that's his portion. No, it isn't his portion. The same word means reins of control. You're giving the control of your sacrifice to the Levite, and he's going out being a minister to the tabernacles of the congregation. That's the way they translate it. But it actually means the tents of the congregation. You're going out and you're serving the homes of the of the individual Levites when there was a true need, strengthening the poor. This is all what the altar systems are about. Same word for a gathering of stones is a gathering of friends. And these Levites were your friends, the trusted men. And you trusted them with your sacrifice, and they were there for you when you needed help. They gathered in other congregations so that you had congregations of tens and ranks of fifties and hundreds and thousands. And when you were invaded or attacked, you had a your your platoons and your companies already 
to go into battle with your young men to defend your nation. And you were willing to do that because when you had a famine, when you had crop failures, when you had fires, when you had injury, when you had sicknesses, they were all helping each other out through a voluntary system of charity. Not through a social welfare system operating by force, fear, and violence, but one operating according to the perfect law of liberty, according to freedom and faith. You want to make America great again, you have to get back to freedom and faith. You have to, you want to loose the bands which have connected you to another. Don't go read the Constitution. You can go read the Constitution. I don't have any problem with that. But if you want to know the solution, go read Isaiah 58. If you really want to understand Isaiah 58, go to our website, Preparing You, and look up in the Bible section, Isaiah 58. We'll give you lots of footnotes so you can understand how to loose the bands which have connected you to another. But eventually, you're going to have to sit down in those congregations, those companies, of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands because Christ commanded that you do so. So anyway, if you go back to 700, uh, the seventh century to 650 or 600 BC and you look at the Greek log, uh, Meigs and Lewis, uh, put together a whole study on this. These are, um, you know, they, they got Greek historical inscriptions. Uh, to the end of the 5th century. They they cover this in a book written back in 1969. And they say, what it says in this, these stone codified laws, it says, may God be kind. And then there's a question as to what the next symbol is. The city has thus decided when a man has been cosmos, in other words, magistrate, The same man shall not be cosmos again for ten years. If he does act as cosmos, whatever judgment he gives, he shall owe double and he shall lose his right of office as long as he lives. And whatever he does as cosmos shall be nothing. The swearer shall be the cosmos. The body of cosmoi... and the demoi, and I'll, um, I mean, we may get time to get into explain that, and 20 of the city. So, I mean, that's what it says. That's a literal, pretty literal translation. And we see that word cosmos repeated. It has nothing to do with the planets and the stars and the earth. It has to do with this office of magistrate, a judge. Why did they limit those term limits? To prevent them from taking bribes because they can only do this for so many years and then they had to wait 10 years before they could do it again and we see uh, other places where they have uh, the law forbids the repeated tenure of the office of cosmos they could not they had to rotate the office presumably as elsewhere in crete the chief magistrate before 10 years have elapsed so they saw the need that if someone had the power to sit in judgment uh, they were, uh, they could be corrupted because power corrupts. And so they were limiting tenure. And this is, this is 600 years before Christ. They're doing this. And, and I also have a study here on this same page, Cosmos on our Preparing You site. For those of you who, who went to the site to look at what's already written there, we have a, a Bryn Maurer classical review. Now he's a, a great Greek scholar. Uh, he understands 
you know, religious Greek, but he understands Greek. He, he is, he is not biased so much religiously. He's trying to find out what words actually mean what. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he, he has a great study on Oranos, which we translate into heaven. And, and that's another word. That's a, that's a sixth word that could actually be translated world. Because Bauer says that the best translation for Oranos, just looking at Greek text, he's not looking just at the Bible. He will look at the Bible uh, because it's Greek text. But he looks at all Greek text and tries to figure out what is the best word to use in the English to translate Oranos, which we translate into heaven. He says the best word is world. So when you see the kingdom of the world, or kingdom of heaven, Bauer says it's best translated kingdom of the world. And he correlates this to other languages like the, the, the Latins, who use a word that means uh, that if you owned a piece of the world, a piece of the planet, you owned it all the way to the core of the earth, to the center of the earth, all the way up to the heavens above. And that's true ownership of the land. You don't have that, but that's what he's talking about. And he correlates that because that's what the kingdom of heaven actually means. Oranos to, it actually means more this system, this whole embodiment, uh, from the heaven above to the center of the earth and all the way around it. So when they're talking kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, those are the same terms. They're not different. Anybody tells you that they're different. They're, they're not. The only one who says kingdom of heaven is Matthew. And he uses that phrase in describing the same thing that we see in the other gospels where they use the word kingdom of God. So they are the same thing. It's just that they're using slightly different Greek words to describe the same thing. And, but anyway, this, uh, what they call the Gortian law codes, which extend all the way up. I mean, this, this is carved in stone and it was still in use in, in 400. A.D. Uh, B.C. Excuse me, 400 B.C. What the cosmos was before he was appointed from the top down by a king, he was actually part of what they call the fillet, which is this uh, uh, members of a council, the Gortian council, and it was based on people sitting down and organizing in something very similar to the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. These families would get together. They would pick somebody else and then they would get together and the the one they picked would get together and eventually form this council of men. And which is like that same word if we go all the way back is that altar. That altar of sacrifice was a council of men, a gathering of men, a gathering of friends. Friendly men, not men to rule over you, but to rule over what you gave them on the altar. You chose to give them a sacrifice and they ruled over that sacrifice, not over the men who gave it. This is a different kind of government. It's different than what, see, you elect men, they choose, we're going to up your taxes or we're going to give you tax breaks. We're going to take away from you and then we're going to get, we're going to give to others. And they're saying, no, 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 that's not the way to create a free government. The free government is we choose to give to these men and they will perform the function of government. And specifically, an altar of sacrifice was the sacrifice that was required to 
help the needy of your society. Now, there would be other sacrifices if you were being attacked. You would need an offering to help supply the army because all your young men are going to go out there and fight the enemy. But they're going to need supplies coming. They're going to need food coming. They're going to need carts to take back the wounded to be cared for. Uh, ambulances, whatever you want to call them. And this is either going to come by free will offerings of the people or it's going to come by forced offerings of kings. And we show you how Saul, the reason Saul's kingdom was not going to stand is because he forced an offering. He started going this way where it wasn't a council of friends, but a council of rulers. So, see, when you start getting these concepts that you have this choice, that you either go towards electing men to rule over you and your neighbor or you elect men to serve you and your neighbor. If you elect those men and you want it to be a free government, then what they can receive, the support of the people, the votive offering of the people, has to be freely given and then freely received. This is what Christ is talking about. You don't even have in your imagination the idea that you can have such a free government. Where there are no taxes, but there are tithes. Where those ten men sitting down will share equally of what they produce with the minister of charity. Not the minister of force. Not minister carrying a sword to force the offering. But a minister of charity. This is what Christ was appointing. This is why the kingdom was being taken away from the Pharisees. is because they had got together with Herod and created Herod the Great and created a system of forced offerings. Now, they couldn't just do this, so they had to get you to sign up. You know, and then you'd get this little white stone with a little Hebrew name on it, which had a numerical, because all the letters in Hebrew have a, uh, stand for a, a number, have a numerical value. So, when you saw that numerical that name, those letters there that actually represented a number and that made you a member. And you could show that stone in any synagogue and be entitled to benefits if, you know, you broke your legs or was blinded or what have you or became old and indigent. And they had scribes to keep a record. So you were a member. And that little number that you had on that little white stone, that was... The number of this beast system. This system of authority. Contrary to what the early Levites were doing. Which were receiving the free will offerings of the tens. Organized in ranks of fifty and hundreds and a thousand. Which Jesus commanded you to do. He commanded his early church ministers to organize in that fashion. It's right there in the text. He commanded it. In companies and companies. In rank upon rank of fifties and hundreds. To the tune of five thousand at that one event. They did the same thing again at Pentecost. You're not doing that. Because you're a member of the cosmos of the world. The member of Pontius Pilate. A member of Rome. You have your number. You have your membership. You can get your ID in that world. But Christ offered another ID, a logos. Actually, I can show you in Justinian codes where they actually use that word logos in reference to an ID for Christians so that they could travel unharmed through the city streets. 
<laughs> but we'll have to take a look at that somewhere else or we won't get through all this. But I'm just trying to show you, if you go back, I mean, where did the word cosmos even come from? It comes from the Greek word kamizo. And, you know, I can show you in other definitions where the word cosmos uh, meant originally the discipline of an army. And then eventually as it, and what was that army? That phile. That phile, those groups of people. The phile was called upon to defend the people. And they were already organized in, in groups according to the families who had gathered together. And their young men would be the military phile. But uh, the heads of the family would also provide the social welfare phile. Through this pattern of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. It wasn't always tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Sometimes it was tens, hundreds, and thousands. Uh, sometimes they actually did twelves. <laughs> uh, because if the same stones that you see, the Grotian Law Codes, is like the Twelve Tablets of Rome. And so, the, who was also organized? They didn't call them the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. They called them hearths in the, the equestrian, where they would gather in these small family groups who would pick a leader, not a ruler, a leader, and to represent them. And then he would gather with other leaders like himself. And then they would pick a leader, and eventually they would get up. Now, if you go back to the 12 tribes, they were doing this. People say, oh, that was Jethro's idea. Well, evidently it was Jesus' idea too because he was commanding that you sit down in the same pattern at the story of the loaves and fishes. But we show you in our study on tens, hundreds, and thousands, which you can see for free again on the website, uh, that this pattern was used even back in the days of Nimrod. And the reason it was... But in Nimrod's day, he was appointing those tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands from the top down. He He was creating... You know, what do they call it? Gerrymandering, where they, uh, they, he was organizing the districts himself and, and putting men over you. <laughs> uh, and you might have had some boat even in the days of Nimrod, but he was your mighty provider instead of the Lord. But the Lord provides through charity and righteousness. Righteous charity. He doesn't, uh, provide by forcing you to contribute. Either for the charity in your community or for military provisions. And because Saul forced a sacrifice, Samuel calls him a fool. Because he went this other way that's contrary to the ways of Christ. Your modern Christian has gone this other way. They have decided that it's okay. You know, when they elected to have a king who was really their commander in chief, when they originally elected him, he was just supposed to fight their battles. Uh, he could also fire the money changers, which were the porters of the temple. They use the word porters. That's what we see translated in the Old Testament. The porters of the temple. Those are the guys who were receiving the sacrifices of the people and dividing them up in this treasury, which is the word Corbin is sometimes translated treasury. And there was more than one treasury. But uh, and more than one word that they translated into treasury in the New Testament. But that's another whole story. So you've got this idea that Saul is the commander in chief and he sees the enemy getting ready and he says, 
He forced a sacrifice. And when Samuel arrives and said, you forced a sacrifice, what the heck are you thinking? You've done this foolish thing. Your kingdom will not stand. Because all such governments lead to tyranny. So why were they creating this rule for the cosmos, for the magistrates in the Gortian law codes to prevent him from having this a perpetual office. They had to rotate in that office. The early Israelites had a system to rotate the Levites because the Levites were your appeals courts. These were the, the cities of the Levites were these cities of refuge. You wouldn't run to that town. You would appeal to that town. That, and we can show you in the Hebrew that that's actually what they were talking about. You would go to them and say, I didn't get a fair trial in my local community because they're all worked up and it was a lynch mob. And yeah, they decided I was guilty, but I did not get a fair trial. And you appeal to the Levites and you go to the city of refuge to appeal up and they take a look at the case. And if they find that justice is being injustice is being done, that justice is not being done. They can overrule and give you an exemption from that prosecution. In other words, dismiss that case. Uh, throw out that judgment. And this was, this was necessary, and you can see that it's necessary, and early Americans saw it was necessary, so they created a system of appeals courts. But the early America was electing a different commander in chief every four years. So every four years they elect a different Saul. <laughs> But the election of Saul was a rejection of God. That's what the Bible says. He allows you to elect a king. He allows you to elect a commander-in-chief. He allows you to elect a, a chief executive officer. And you certainly can do that. He does tell you to write down certain things in your constitution. Only one of which appears in the Constitution of the United States. All the others don't appear there, which is why you're back into the bondage of Egypt again. But that's another story. We go through that and free books online, contracts, constitutions, uh, or covenants and constitutions. And, uh, and you're not to have any of those contracts, covenants, or constitutions. It says so in the Ten Commandments. You know, your Constitution is your contract with America, right? I mean, that's what they called it a few years ago. Your contract with America. And and your relationship to that constitution is far different than the relationship of the American, uh, individual American back in 1792, uh, who didn't even vote on the constitution and was not in favor of the constitution. Most Americans, had it been put to a popular vote, it would have been voted down. Historians all agree to that. But you think, oh, it's our salvation. No, your salvation is Christ. You're just not learning about the real Christ and what he was really telling you to do from your local ministers, from the churches you're going to. They may make you feel good. They may comfort you with their words. And they may uh, appeal to your vanity so that you, oh, you are part of the, you know, this synod or that synod or this group or that group and we're doing it right because we're using this calendar or that calendar or this Sabbath day or that Sunday or whatever. And they make you feel like you belong to something. 
We don't want to make you feel like you belong to something. We want you to really belong to Christ. We want you to be led by Christ. The only reason we're giving you this information, that cosmos was a statement about jurisdiction. My kingdom's not of your world is about jurisdiction. The only reason we're telling you that is that you get your heads out of modern religion and start thinking about what Christ was really saying. Now, you have to repent in your heart. This is going to take a humble heart. And you have to, and one of the humble things that you have to do is sit down and start caring about others. Sit down in those companies and start weekly, daily caring about others. Not just those in your little group. Because there is no grace if you own, or very little grace if you only love those who love you. That's what it says. What grace is there if you only love those who love you? That's actually the word there is grace. It's not thank. It's grace. They just translate it thank that one time. But it means you don't, you don't get no grace. You're not going to get any loaves and fishes till you sit down in those tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And you're not going to get any grace unless you start loving people that you don't even know. And the way you do that is you get together in a local congregation. So you, you don't just pick a minister. You get into a congregation and you don't pick that congregation because they're all saints. I, I don't know how many times I say this. Don't look for a congregation filled with saints. If you find one, which I think you will have a hard time doing. <laughs> if you find one, they're not going to let you in. <laughs> if that's a requirement. If you have to be a saint already to get into a congregation, most of you are out. <laughs> just, that's just a guarantee. I'm not making that up. You know that's true. You're not saints yet. <laughs> you may want to believe in Christ. But you got to find out who he really is. Because there are false Christs out there, just like there's false news and false good news. That isn't really... False good news ain't good news. It's bad news. It's bad news for you. It's bad news for your soul. This is an individual journey that you have to take with others. You have to walk with others in this individual journey. And this journey is really going to take you down into the depths of your own soul. But right now, almost all of you are very much a part of the cosmos of Rome. And if you're, if you make your goal to be separate from the cosmos of Rome, you will fall short. Your goal is the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Your goal is to think a different way, repent. And in that repentance, which is an ongoing process of changing the way you think, the goal is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Stop shaking your fist at Caesar and Nimrods of the world and the Cains of the world. And start putting your hand to the plow of Christ. Start tilling his field and setting his table. Start sitting down together. And start caring about one another. And when you do that, pick a minister and he will need your help. He will need your encouragement because he doesn't know what he's doing yet. He may know something, but he doesn't know what he's doing yet because he doesn't have any practice. You are babes seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But we'll be back. I hope you'll be back too.
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So anyway, just the, how did the, the Israelites rotate their system of judges, uh, which was the Levites? Because see, as you appealed up through the Levites, you would, uh, you were appealing up through that pattern of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. So the, each Levite had gathered together with nine other Levites like himself, and then they picked a minister, and then those ministers gathered together with nine other ministers like themselves, Levite ministers like themselves, and they picked them. This was a pattern that was used all over. And I mentioned the phile, which was this ancient Greek term. is is it, used for a long time. Uh, a lot of the record of its use are in times later when the head of a, of a uh, file would have been referred to as a basilius or king, a ruler. But originally these, you know, throughout man's history, the most common form of government was these tens, fifties, hundreds and thousands. These patterns of, of groups getting together in small family groups that were uniting themselves in larger and larger and larger groups until they formed what you might call tribes or nations. Israel was composed of 12 tribes. One of those was the Levite tribe that had a different status than everybody else. Uh, but they were picked because they were the first ones called out. The Levites... They, Moses called out who is of the Lord when they created this walled-in camp with the golden calf, which was a central bank, which was a system of government in order to bind people and their wealth together for protection. And the city-states did this all the time. I mean, you'll, you'll, uh, there were plenty of these filet, and they were often identified by location, and city-states were often composed of these filet. Uh, cl- clans and tribes, because it, it's a generic term. It can actually just be in a family clan, but those clans come together. They can form a tribe, and tribes can come together and form a city-state or a nation. And then you have these uh, national groups. They all can be called file, but they're at different stages. Eventually, they had kings, but originally, they were voluntary societies that came together. They weren't picking rulers, Indians did a lot of this. They might have chiefs, but the chief couldn't, he didn't rule over everybody. He was just kind of a leader when it came to strategy in a fight. They weren't emperors. They weren't commanders in chief. They were just, you know, good organizers and picked. So anyway, they had these systems, these voluntary systems for century upon century organized in the same fashion. But you had to have this, for in order to remain free, you had to have the spirit of freedom, the spirit of love, and the spirit of charity, and this virtue amongst the people. Without that, these systems would fall apart. Without that, the systems that are operating by force fall apart too, but they will last longer. <laughs> or I shouldn't say they will last longer once they have no virtue, but they will fall harder <laughs> when they fall. Um, the others, without the virtue, fall apart rather quickly. But they don't fall as hard and they can almost instantaneously reform again amongst those who repent and become virtuous. So anyway, let's take a look. So anyway, how they rotated back in Israel was the high priest uh, was whoever was the high priest was the high priest in the area that the tabernacle was set up and the tabernacle moved 
from tribe to tribe, tribal area to tribal area. So if they were in the in the the, the area of the Danites, uh, it would be a Danite high priest who would uh, oversee the operation of the tabernacle when it was there, which was still all a part of this network of charity and military forces because it was a militia, militia forces, because the same groups would immediately form the militia that had formed these charitable, because the bonds were being created on a day-to-day, weekly way Whenever there was a need for a daily ministration, like, you know, a guy got injured or got sick or died and his family was going to starve without help uh, because the breadwinner was gone, the community would step in through this network to provide for those needs. If crops failed everything, they would help each other out. And they had a network that reached far beyond their local community because they were organized in these ranks upon ranks, not of rulers but of servants, public servants. That's what liturgy means, public service. Today, your public services are just to tickle yours and make you feel good and play the right music. But it used to be to actually help one another out in times of trial and tribulation. Because of the bonds that were created during these good times where difficulties appeared, they were ready in bad times when enemies invaded. And when people had to flee one area and reconnoiter, they could do this. A lot of flexibility in that kind of free government system, which gives them the power to overcome vast enemies. And actually, with the grace of God, they even have an extra edge (laughs) where they will just know what to do and when to do it. And they will strike fear in the hearts of their enemy. And this all goes back to the metaphysical part of the kingdom that is operating by faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence. And so what happens is that once you start going by this force, fear, and violence and covetous practices, the devil takes control, which brings us to the first place we see the word cosmos show up in the Bible, which is Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil taketh him up into exceeding high mountain, showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, cosmos, and the glory of them. Somebody said, the devil owns the earth. And I said, no, I didn't say that. He said, yeah, it says that he, he owned the whole world. No, it doesn't say that. It says he wants to own the whole world. I agree that that, but he doesn't own it. What it says is the kingdoms, the basiliuses of... The cosmos, the organized system of men, not of the planet. See, that's what, if you don't know the meaning of the word there, you're going to think the kingdoms of the planet, which still isn't the planet itself. It's just the kingdoms of the planet. And if you don't understand what is property rights and how you get property rights, if you go into the woods that nobody owns and you cut down a tree that nobody owns, then you haul it out. That's your tree. Not, you know, God grew it, but how did you get to own it? Well, it didn't have any value way there in the woods, but it has value out here that you're going to now carve a canoe out of it. You carve that canoe out of it, that's your canoe. Why? Because your sweat and blood is in the toil that turned a piece of wood into a canoe. So you have a property right in the canoe. 
So does God. <laughs> but you do. Nobody else does because you're the one that hauled it out. If you plant it from a seed and grow it up and everything, then you have more property rights in it. So anyway, but that's we're getting off track here. Look at he is the he is in control of the kingdoms of the world. The Basilius is the world because he operates by force and control. He's very organized. And he got these people to organize in a foolish way. But still, they became a part of his system, the adversary system. You're a part of such a system because you're a part of the kingdoms of the world. Now, you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you have to think a different way and go a different way and put action in a different way. You have to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start caring about one another through faith, hope, and charity. And then when you come back to your father's house or head back to your father's house with an intention of being a servant of your father, he will run out and protect your cosmos, which is not operating according to the adversary by force, fear, and violence and covetous practices, but is operating by faith, hope, and charity. So in Matthew 5.14, we see the word pop up again. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Light of the world. You're shining a light on the system of the world. And that's what I'm doing. I'm showing you. You can tell whether this is of God or of the devil. Now, real quick, because I, I want to at least touch on this. Paul talks about, and this is going to be another word that we're going to study authority and we think he's talking about government authority because of the translation but he talks in Romans 13 that every man remains subject to the higher power higher authority depending on whose translation you're looking at because all authority is of God but the word there is actually right to choose and yes if you give a government the right to choose for you the right to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare you give him that power and the only way you can give them power is your neighbor did the same thing. The neighbor gave the ruler the power to force you and thinking that he would be to, to, to his advantage to have that one purse that the ruler can take from everybody's purse. That golden calf was one purse and then dole it out according to the way he thinks is just right and fair. But that power corrupts him and the devil enters into him and then he does what's not just right and fair. If you're going to attend to the weightier matters, you have to go back to that system where the power and purse strings of government is in the hands of the individual. And the only thing that is laid upon that altar is what he chooses to lay upon that altar. And then the minister is governed by the fact that if he does not do well with what he is given, you will give to somebody else. And so now he knows he is answerable to you, but he's also answerable to God. And it is, if you want it to be the kingdom of God, then you have to pick ministers that are not just doing what you want, but doing what you truly believe God wants. In order to get to a state where you know what that is, you have to start that process of repentance and start listening to your father. You can't just do what is right in your own eyes. You need the eyes of Christ. You need to understand his ways. And that's why we talk about his ways. So when Paul's talking about that, and then he talks about those ruling authorities later on, they're there to punish the wicked. Who are the wicked? They're the ones who rejected God and elected 
these men who could exercise authority and gave them power to begin with. That's who they're, those men are supposed to take and take and take and take. They're supposed to create chaos in your government. They're supposed to do that because that's in the nature of the government you have chosen for yourselves. Because the government you have chosen for yourself is of the world of Cain, Nimrod, and Saul. It's not of the government of God. The government of God is you let your neighbor choose how much he will lay upon the altar of God. And you guys have to work together. It doesn't say, I want you to love your ministers. It says, I want you to love one another. And I want you to pick ministers who have my spirit in them, who have come to serve. You know, there's a great temptation of ministers to sit in pulpits and feed off of that pulpit, that position, that prideful position of being the minister of God. No, you, your ministers need to be foot washers, which is the lowest servant of the household. And in order to do that, they need to be a light and show the truth to their... I don't know how many pastors I've dealt with who are pastors of existing congregations that when they you start explaining this so that they actually start understanding this, their voice breaks out into a whisper. <laughs> and the first time I really noticed this, I've seen it more than this, but I, I was out in the middle of a field, out in the middle of the desert, way out. And he started getting it. And he started, and he still does this to the day. He gets real quiet. <laughs> whispers. And I said, why are you whispering? Nobody's going to overhear you. Because he's so afraid to say the truth. The truth is, the church is, what we, is posing as the church is an apostasy. It has gone the wrong way. So we have to turn around and go back the other way. Another quote. Uh, Matthew 13.35, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things which have been kept secret since the foundation of the world. And there it is, the foundation of the cosmos. What is that word foundation there? Do you know what word that is? It actually is from a word that means a throwing or laying down. And it can mean kind of, uh, you know, founding something. But throwing the laying down. Well, you know, reading an ancient story, historical account, of when they were starting to build the temple. I'm not sure which temple. Well, it might have been the Temple of Mineta. They, now, temples originally were areas. They weren't stone buildings. But as they progressed more and more in power and wealth, then they started becoming buildings. And even the Temple of Janus was not really a building. It was just two gates. It was a walled-in area with two gates. And you go in, it was just an open area, then you go out the other gate. <laughs> and we talked about that one of the last shows. But in this one temple, they were getting ready to set the cornerstone of the temple. And people came there, you know, like they cutting a ribbon and everything. And they came there to witness the. And as they were moving the stone into place, men were throwing gold coins down on the ground where they were going to set the stone. And so they're going to set the stone on top of those gold coins. And so they were throwing those gold coins in. And it had to do because charity was a virtue to the Romans. 
This was very important. It was this sacrifice, sacrifice of yourself in battle, sacrifice yourself in times of need. Charity was a virtue. And so they would throw these coins knowing that the stone would be set on them and until, and then all the other stones would be set and you had to tear down all the stones to get the coin that was underneath there. They were, they were, it was a way in which they were bringing the spirit of charity into the process. Because without that spirit of charity, they would not have wealth. You know who actually discovered that in our own modern times? Rockefeller. Maybe, you know, Rockefeller's got a lot of problems because he had a lot of power and power corrupts. And he didn't share that power as well as he probably should have. But the original Rockefeller, he gave everything. He he tithed. Huge, huge sums he gave away. Now, eventually, the Rockefeller system began to tithe to those who would bring them more power back <laughs> because of the corruption that enters into. But his success has a lot to do with the fact that he understood that you had to have this charitable aspect in order to be blessed. So now you want to be blessed. And of course you got guys like Reverend Dollar and all these guys out there. I guess I can't remember his whole name, but anyway, he, they're talking about you have to give and they have this prosperity gospel. It is, there's a certain truth in that. You cannot give so that you will be prosperous, but you have to be willing to lay down your life so that you can pick up your life more abundantly. And But you have to lay it down with the true sense of sacrificing for others, not so you can gain. <laughs> Otherwise, you, 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 you affect what you're actually talking about. You actually destroy the very process that you're talking about. So, anyway, the, he's revealing the secrets in his parables. And we're revealing the secrets by helping you understand the parables and helping you understand even when he was telling you straight out. See, you don't even know what he meant when he says, my kingdom's not of this world. You don't understand what he was talking about. Because you don't know what word he used there. Well, now you understand. Now you understand how your religion should be unspotted by the world. Not dependent upon the world at all. Now I understand it's a process to get there, but that's where you need to be going. In Matthew thirteen thirty eight, they say the field is the world. He's, he's explaining his parable. And the good seeds are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. So you're sowed in. Some of you are the children of the kingdom. Some of you will enter into congregations with tares. <laughs> who are the children of the wicked ones. Who say they are the children of the kingdom. But they won't tithe. Oh, they'll make up all kinds of excuses why they don't have to actually sacrifice for others. They will try to create the image that they're sacrificing for others, but they won't. So, yeah, you should be giving. The children of the kingdom will, by their very nature, want to give. And they can't just give to those that will love them back. They have to give, freely give. And that's why you you cast your bread upon the waters. You do it through the Levites, through the ministers of the church. And you do it through other ways, too. There's no limitation to it. The only one who's pleasing you is the Holy Spirit. You can't fake this. you got to do this for will. For for real. Matthew sixteen twenty six. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world, cosmos? This whole kingdoms of the world. And lose his own soul. 
Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You are already bought and sold. You are part of the traveling merchants of the earth, the souls of men, men and the slaves and souls of men. You want to go back, you have to return back to the ways of Christ. You have to do what he commanded. You have to sit down, start living by charity. Start helping others live by charity by being charitable yourself. You don't want to buy me a jet plane or <laughs> or build a cathedral or get a big screen TV for the church. You want to really be helping set people free. In Matthew eighteen seven, he says, Woe unto the world, the cosmos. Again, there's the word. It's not the planet. It's the cosmos. Because of offenses. See, the planet doesn't commit offenses. But the cosmos does. You know, I, I told you before that uh, that that word cosmos, uh, where it had originally come from. But it also, it, and I mentioned camiso, but I never really told you what camiso means. Camiso is the Greek word that means, and I'm going to read you right out of the definition. To care for, take care of, provide for, or secondary uh, definition carry off what is one's own in order to possess. Okay, do you have the cosmos or camiso of Christ or the camiso of the world? If it's the camiso of the world, they will care for you, but they will carry you off and you will become their merchandise, their human resources. If you are the camiso of Christ, he will set you free. So woe unto the world because of offenses. What? Covetousness. Uh, putting heavy burdens upon one another, taking a bite out of one another. Because you, that's how you've become devoured. Because you are willing to live at the expense of your neighbor by electing men who would force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare and put your children and your children's children in debt. And what country has not done that? Uh, right now on the news, just this morning, uh, a new threat. The armies of China and the Soviet Union are growing with leaps and bounds. They're putting all kinds of money into their military and building their militaries up. Why? (laughs) Do they know something's coming? (laughs) You need to build the military of God. And because there are, and you know, we would eventually get to this. Jesus talks about Having a congregation of which you do not know. He's talking about a metaphysical congregation that can become physical rather rapidly. (laughs) His holy angels. You're going to need allies. And you're going to need the allies of God because the allies of the world will turn upon one another. They will fall on each other's sword. They They will cheat and rob each other. Because that's the way they operate. That is the armies of hell. You want to align yourself with the armies of God. You want to do this, then you have to sit down and start becoming the charitable altars of God. According to the cosmos of God. Matthew twenty four twenty one. For then shall be great tribulations, such as was not since the beginning of the world cosmos, to this time. No, nor even shall be. 
We're talking serious tribulations here. <laughs> so anyway, we're running out of time. There's a lot more to this. It talks about the Father, inherit the kingdom. Seek that kingdom with all your heart, with all your mind. Gather together in love. Until then, peace upon your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.